entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats are proceeding with their impeachment fiasco and are considering some extreme measures, they say, to protect the identity of the whistleblower. We'll get into that. Plus, the president's decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria has caused a firestorm. We'll break down what that's going to look like. And then also, Justin Trudeau is asked a straightforward question and cannot give a straightforward answer. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to Code what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The call was a perfect call. Uh, you had stenographers. You had people that took it down exactly. It was a perfect call. Uh, it's just a scam. This is a scam by the Democrats to try and win an election that they're not going to win in 2020. All you have to do is take a look at the polls, see what, what happened. One poll had me up 12 points, 16 points, or 17 points. We Just take a look at what's going on. The people understand it's a scam. They're trying to win an election in 2020 by using impeachment. If you look at that call... It's a perfect call. It's congenial. There was no pressure. And what did the head of Ukraine say? What did the head? Did he say there was no pressure? Did his person say, his top representative, his foreign minister say there was no pressure whatsoever? There was no pressure put on him. This is a scam. This is one of the greatest scams. We Look, we beat you on the we won on the Mueller scam. That was a whole big deal that lasted for two and a half years. We had a few days of peace, and then all of a sudden they came up with this one. But I guess it's just part of my life. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Pressure, huh? That's the big question. Did the president put pressure on Ukraine to investigate his political rivals? All these, these uh, talking points, the building blocks of narrative meant to damage this president, meant to turn his supporters against him and to fire up the left-wing base. Let's all establish one thing. Before I get into the latest back and forth of the the processes here of the impeachment inquiry. Oh, yes, because it's, it's really just about finding facts. This isn't all an excuse for a, an, an emotional, a, a catharsis of Trump derangement syndrome here, uh, just just finally purging themselves of all the bile that has built up over time because they hate Trump so much. Let's start with one very straightforward understanding of what's what's happening here. The decision to impeach this president, as far as the left wing Democratic Party is concerned, the decision did not come from a phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. The decision was not the result of the 10 possible acts of obstruction, which were laughable in the Mueller probe, uh, did not come from Russia collusion that did not exist. The decision to impeach this president was made by many Democrats, whether they recognized it as such or not. The day after the 2016 election, they just can't handle this. They, they cannot accept that Hillary Clinton's coronation was truly defeated by a populist political movement on the right. Despite all the assistance from the Democrat media, despite all of the establishment inside the federal bureaucracy, outside of it, all across the country in the elite corridors of opinion making and academia and 
Despite all of that, Trump won. And they just will not accept it. They won't move past it. They're unwilling to look at the 2020 as elect, uh, election as a chance to set things right. They view the 2016 election as still illegitimate and this president as illegitimate. And the only way that they feel, because it really is about feelings. It's not about what the, the facts of the case may be. It's not about what the information is as presented. They have a feeling that Trump should be repudiated through this impeachment process, which is just entirely political. This is all about the House of Representatives holding a formal vote that shows that a majority of Democrats believe that President Trump is unfit to be president. Okay, well, we've known that all along. There's nothing new here. And to run these investigations of Trump the way that they're doing is so clearly that they talk about obstruction. The Democrats raise the issue of obstruction constantly, which to them just means if you don't do exactly what we say, if the Trump administration puts up any kind of resistance, dare I say, against their demands, then that is in itself obstruction. Well, I take a I take a different view of this. I, I disagree with the Democrats that if we don't just lie down and do whatever they want us to do in this investigation, that we are breaking the law and threatening our democracy and all this other stuff that they talk about. They decided to impeach Trump the day after he won the election. And now we're finally at this point. They hope that maybe there could be a criminal charge that they could place this on top of. They were hoping that the Mueller probe would at least come close to something that was truly criminal and and wrong and that that would be the basis for their impeachment and it didn't exist but instead of looking at that as perhaps a sign or a signal they decided that the better option would be to just come up with an entirely new basis for impeaching the president right they they didn't change overall what they wanted they just decided that it was going to be a different pathway and that's where we are now which is why you see all the different uh, anti-trump news outlets they are doing everything that they can to take the democrat house not just the talking points but the framework that they have constructed for this to make it to give it a, a veneer to give it a facade of legitimacy when this entire process is ridiculous if the president is guilty of political wrongdoing, meaning if he did something that's really bad and people should be upset at him, not that's illegal. Well, then, you know, not that are high crimes and misdemeanors. Then we have a very clear process to deal with that. It is called an election. And yet the same Democrats who constantly talk about the need to respect our most sacred institutions. They now say, well, we can't wait for that election. We have to do this, this mostly symbolic, again, purge of all the built up anti-Trump venom that they have all at once. Just just let it all out there. And now they're trying to find a way to make it seem as though that's not what's going on. Oh, no, they they're just looking for the facts here. Front page of The New York Times administration bars witness from speaking to impeachment inquiry. So what, what the Democrats are planning to do is to take any person who's ever uh, talked to Trump about Ukraine and put them on the stand and try to get them to say something bad about Trump. 
under the pretense that this is some necessary investigation. What is the, the, the fundamental problem with the Mueller probe was that they never had a they, there was never a crime established that involved anything having to do with Trump or, or anyone here in this in this country. Right. The, the crimes that they that they found in some cases more or less manufactured the charging Papadopoulos, the charging uh, Flynn. Those were process crimes that came out during the investigation. They did not exist before that meat grinder of investigation was turned on as a harassment tool against the president. But there was no initial crime that it, that required the appointment of a special counsel. Russian interference in our election, external interference in our election, that could be investigated by the DOJ. They can handle that. There's no there's no reason for a special counsel. The only reason for a special counsel was that President Trump, according to the left, must have worked with the Russians on this. Now, that was a lie, but that was the premise that they were operating. That's the premise they had to be operating under to get us to the Russia collusion investigation as it existed. And then and then on top of that, the firing of James Comey for and saying that he had corrupt intent in that, which is just they're never going to prove that. And even if they thought they could prove it, the president has an absolute right to fire Comey for any reason he wants. There's nothing illegal about it. He could fire Comey because he doesn't like his necktie. So they created this completely that all these they went with all these false pretenses. For that investigation, and we were going through that for two and a half years, and now we're supposed to just willingly submit. The American people should sit back and say, yeah, let's just let the Democrats have their way here in this impeachment inquiry. I don't think so. Not on my watch and not on my time. Um, But this is just all it's all just the nastiest kind of politics of personal destruction, of lying, of misleading the American people, all in an effort to destroy a president that. If what they said was true about him as a president, why, why would they be so worried about the 2020 election? You see, they're worried about 2020 because they think that they might lose. I know all the polls say right now, oh, that people are ahead of Trump. The polls always said that everybody was ahead of Trump before. Democrats right now are having flashbacks. They're, they're getting terrified. They, they wonder if Trump is hiding in their closet or waiting under their bed at night. You know, they, they can't handle the prospect of four more years of this president. And so this then, this impeachment inquiry, yes, it's very contrived and they've been working together on it, but it's a desperation move. A desperation move because if Trump hasn't already entirely psychologically broken the left and the political establishment and the media elite, four more years of him, they really just can't take it. They won't be able to handle it. And so it's in that environment that we now talk about witnesses and what was said and who said what and where's the whistleblower and the second whistleblower and all the this is all a distraction from the overall purpose of what's going on here, which is just find some way to damage the president politically so that he won't win the 2020 election. Everything else is noise. He didn't. There's no laws that have been broken. And really, it's it's if you want to talk about an abuse of power, what Congress is doing is an abuse of power. What, what the Congress did this time around and what the deep state, the federal bureaucrats that managed to get the special counsel, they abused their power and in some cases broke the law. They accuse Trump and all the rest of us 
of crimes for which they themselves are guilty, of abuses that they themselves have committed. I believe psychologists call this projection. There's a whole lot of projection going on with the Democratic Party these days. Nancy Pelosi knew all of this stuff. I mean, she's as guilty as he is because she knew all that. She knew everything about it, and she didn't do anything about it. And I'll tell you what, um, they should really be looked at very strongly because what they did is unthinkable. What they did to this country is unthinkable. And it's lucky that I'm the president because I guess I don't know what. A lot of people said very few people could handle it. I sort of thrive on it. You know why? Because... Because it's so important that we get to the bottom. We went through the whole Mueller scam two and a half years. We went through that. And I had three, four days where it was like over. And then I'm walking into the United Nations. And they released it as I'm walking in, Mr. Ambassador. I'm walking in. I'm going to meet with, I won't name, but one of the top leaders of the world. And I see up on the screen and people start screening about this scam called impeachment. You can't impeach a president for doing a great job. You can't impeach a president for having the lowest and best unemployment numbers that we've had in 51 years. You can't impeach a president for tax cuts and regulation cuts and creating, and even the ambassador would say, the strongest economy in the world. We have the strongest economy in the world. This is a scam. I agree with President Trump, but he's wrong on uh, on one level here. I agree with him, except they can and I think they will impeach the president, despite all those things that he says. Despite the fact that the country is going through a period of so much prosperity and relative peace that what I keep hearing from people, you know, I'm out in Las Vegas right now at a, at a major financial conference and hearing all these experts talk about the future and. A lot of them still think that this economy has plenty more room to expand and run and that there's not a, a recession that is imminent by any means, that the numbers are looking good and just things are we're rocking and rolling in America right now economically. That's that's the sentiment from people that all they do all day long is try to understand where this is going. Did you ever feel like that during the eight years of the Obama administration? Things are great. Can things continue to be as good as they are right now? That doesn't feel like it's possible. That's what experts who, by the way, they're not experts in the political sense. They're experts as in they're telling people what to do with their money. So if they're wrong, that's a problem. But are there are there any people that remember the Obama years? Wow, things are so great with Obama in office. The economy's doing so well. I wonder if it could stay like this. I certainly don't. I remember hearing that the days of GDP growth that America was was happy with, that those were gone, that our best days were. And, and this is from Democrats who are excusing the slowest recovery from a recession since World War II in the Obama years. What, what is the big part of Trump's record? Think about this, that they can go after. What is the huge blunder? What's the unnecessary war, the disastrous health care plan? Uh, n- numbers at the border have come way down. The president, yeah, they had a huge surge. Trump was really cleaning up a problem of the bureaucracy at the border that he in- he did inherit it from the Obama administration. And to be fair, the Obama administration inherited border problems from the Bush administration. I and mean, this, no one has really handled illegal crossing at our southern border well at all. But Trump is the first one who has said, look, we've got to do something about this, and I'm going to fight these fights. We're going to take it to court. We're going to use executive order. We're going to build a wall, all these things. 
But what's what's the disastrous decision? You start from that prospect. I, I remember a guy that uh, was trying to tell me about the the business of investing. He just said there are really only four things that happen: Lo- uh, win big, win little, lose little, lose big. He said if you cut out lose big, you're pretty much always going to be okay. Just avoid catastrophic events. <laughs> avoid you're out of the game. And for presidents, I think there's there's wis- there's some simple wisdom in that. Trump has avoided catastrophic events. Trump hasn't done something that's that's nightmarish. And, and when you look at what he has had to deal with, and I'm not somebody who apologizes for all, I don't like his personnel decisions. I think he's put a lot of people in senior roles in this White House that have not served him well at all. And there are still some left that do not serve him well. I mean, I, I, there's plenty of room. You know, he's spending too much money. If you guys want to have a conversation, and I'm really open to it, if you want more of this, of where I think Trump should improve or where he hasn't met expectations, I'm well aware. You know, sometimes his tweets will seem a little counterproductive, but sometimes they seem pretty awesome. So that balances out a little bit. But overall, on the big issues, what what's the Democrat line of attack? Vote for Elizabeth Warren. She'll destroy the economy, but you'll, you'll feel good about yourself. Vote Vote for Bernie Sanders. So you can have a piece of paper that says you have free health care, but you're going to wait forever. I asked a guy last night who's a British national who's out here in Las Vegas. Uh, I asked him last night. I said, so I'm just wondering, man, you're a very this guy's a very sophisticated, well off individual. OK, just can you know travels all over the world, can do whatever he wants. And I said, look, well, tell me you're 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 Brit, you know, born and raised in London. You're Brit. What, what do you think of the National Health Service? He said it's garbage, but it's free. And people like free stuff. But he says it's crap. He said that if you and, you know, you're not going to hear this from Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. If you have a serious operation that needs to be done, I had never even really heard about this before. I know that medical tourism was a thing. He said that well-off Brits now will go to have major surgeries done in India and Thailand before they'll have the National Health Service do it. Think about that one for a second, folks. Is that what? Remember, National Health Service is supposed to be the gold standard for what Bernie Sanders and others want here. Pays all the doctors, pays all the bills. You know, health care is paid for by the state. Do you want to start hopping on a plane when you have to have surgery to go to Thailand? I'd, I'd prefer to just drive like a mile down the street and go see a doctor that I've known for 20 years. You know, I don't, I don't particularly want to have to fly around the world because my free health care is so good in my own country. And this was, I, I, by the way, this guy, I don't think he, I don't think he likes, I get the sense he doesn't like Trump. He's not politically aligned with me at all, but he's like, yeah, the healthcare is, he said it's crap, but it's free. Well, true of a lot of things Democrats are offering up right now. But you see, this is all, this gets lost right now. This gets pushed aside. Instead, we're supposed to think that what exactly is the charge even against Trump? That he used pressure, the presidents use pressure on foreign counterparts all the time for all kinds of things. We, we have pressure points written into law that presidents can use. You know, if a country, for example, won't take back its its uh, illegal aliens, we can put, cut off all visas. The president just says, all right, we're going to cut off all visas from your country. I want to get back into this, though. What is the crime the president's even supposed to be guilty of? The American people have the right to know if the president is acting in their interests, in the nation's interests, with an eye towards our national security uh, and not in his narrow personal political interests. They have a right to know, indeed, the American people have a need to know. And through this impeachment inquiry, we are determined to find the answers. That sounds like 
Adam Schiff, who is the the shadiest fellow now in the Congress. I think there's very little question about that. Guy has no ethics. I, I would not buy a a used uh, a, a used toaster from this guy. Never mind a used car. I would not buy anything from him if that was his chosen line of work. He's incredibly unseemly in the way that he presents facts and information, disingenuous and dishonest. And he was a part of the whole Russia collusion mess. He was at the front of it, really, saying that he had evidence of Russia collusion. And he does not feel chastened by that at all. And I will tell you, it's it's frustrating because his supporters, I think, also do not care. They fundamentally do not care that he was wrong about that because it was all a destroy Trump effort. So you, you don't get mad at somebody when they try to destroy Trump like Schiff did if you're a left wing loon. You're just disappointed it didn't work, and then you're happy when he tries it again. That's why these Democrats, Pelosi and Schiff, there's no, there's no check on them for good faith. There's nothing to stop them from continuing to act in this way. So Schiff is saying we need to find out if Trump is working. Yeah, that, that's, this is all political decision-making that has to be adjudicated by the american people in an election that's what needs to go down here what all this other stuff is ridiculous it's ridiculous but i want to go back to this fundamental point because this gets so lost as oh ambassador sondland right now here here, this is what the the big story state department directs gordon sondland not to appear for house testimony is the u.s ambassador to to the eu and they were trying to you know what they're hoping to do here is just get get someone to break and either say that Trump is a bad guy on Ukraine for one reason or another, or just say something that they can then twist and pretend is confirmation of all of their allegations against this president. That is what they are hoping for. Uh, But I want to step back for a moment from the, the process here, which is really getting crazy. I mean, now you've got Democrats saying, that they are considering extreme measures to protect the identity of the first government whistleblower. They might even interview the person behind a curtain and obscure his or her voice, as though this person is the most sensitive government asset in our entire intelligence arsenal. Oh my gosh, not the not the, the whistleblower. What are we going to do if people find out his or her? They find out their identity. Uh, this is ridiculous. And it's just showing you how much pure partisan malice is at the heart of all of this. The Democrats pretend to be using the process as is, but then they give no respect whatsoever to their Republican colleagues in the House, and they act like there will be leaks of this person's identity. So they have to even obscure the identity of the first whistleblower from other members of the House. The House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, you know, HPSCI, uh, handles highly classified information on a regular basis. Now, some of it tends to leak, usually stuff that is politically damaging for this president, for example, for Republican presidents. That's what leaks, not against Democrats. Democrats played. Look, can we just say Democrats play dirty? Because they think that they're on some, you know, some mission from Mother Earth or something. They think that, you know, they're, they need to be empowered to save us from climate change killing us all. And so that means that whatever they want to do, whatever they have to do is justified. So they don't view it as playing dirty. They just view it as doing what's necessary. And then in another act of projection, the Democrat left thinks that, oh, Republicans are the ones 
who don't play by any rules. They say that Trump is a fascist. The Trump administration has gotten blocked so many times by a single left-wing activist federal judge, and they just say, okay, well, I guess we'll see you in court. I guess we'll see you in court. Trump administration's respected the process, respected these constitutional norms and separation of powers in so many ways that you never see the Democrats do it. I mean, the Obama administration, President Obama would say, you know, I got a pen on the phone. I got a pen on the phone. And he was going to just do whatever he wanted to do after Congress wouldn't do what he said he didn't have the authority to do himself. And then and the press would just say, oh, yeah, you know, Obama, but he's amazing. I mean, he's basically God. So we'll let him do whatever he wants. And they just they make up these they make up these lies. They make up these stories about that everything Trump does is unprecedented, that Trump doesn't respect the rule of law. No, he's not doing things that are unprecedented. We, we, they've dropped off that a little bit because so many journalists look so stupid. All you have to do is a quick Google search. You'll find other presidents have done this. Other presidents have declared national emergencies. You know, you go through this and they oh, my gosh, all the hysteria. Really adds up to nothing other than just Democrats venting their rage, which is something they seem to need to do. But what is the and this is where I will say I, I break from some even some conservatives that I respect very much and 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 whose opinions I, I like to hear on these matters. What is, in all honesty, the the crime that they think President Trump, the crime or misdemeanor, high crimes or misdemeanors that the President Trump committed? What is the, the conduct that they think is impeachable? That he asked for an investigation? Democrats are currently hounding anyone who's ever even talked to Trump about Ukraine, it seems. Bring one person after another. So they can investigate anyone they want as much as they want, as long as they want. And they can take multiple rounds of this, too. We've got a special counsel. OK, now we got the, the impeachment inquiry. OK, I mean, they, they get to do this. And we're supposed to pretend that this is just their oversight function. I mean, as, as if we're all a bunch of idiots. We're supposed to believe that Democrats aren't doing this out of just politics. I mean, this is this is silly, right? I mean, no, nobody really thinks this is the case, but that's the cover story. That is the Democrat cover story. No, no, they're they're just trying to get to the bottom of this. But when Trump asks for Zelensky or when Trump puts his attorney general in touch with Ukrainian counterparts, when the Department of Justice under this president is looking for more facts and more information, that is beyond the pale. That's a huge problem, because ultimately what you're going to find out here, folks, is that the origins of the Russia collusion investigation were it, it was a a soft coup effort. I mean, we've known that for a long time, but you're going to have proof of that at some point, that it's not just that the Democrats and the left psychologically rejected Trump's win in, 20, in 2016. It's that they then took measures. Both that that began when he was running. And then continued after his election, they took measures to stop this president and undo the will of the American people and abuse their offices and lied and and scammed and cheated in order to get to that place. On the other side of this equation, you have Representative Adam Schiff, who is very upset that the ambassador ambassador has not yet shown at the direction of the State Department. Play 22. 
We were informed about an hour and a half ago that uh, by the attorney for Ambassador Sondland that the State Department would refuse to allow him to testify today. This was after conversations um, well into uh, yesterday afternoon and evening uh, with the State Department legal advisor in which there was no indication uh, that the ambassador would be a no-show. Not only is the Congress being deprived of his testimony, the American people being deprived of his testimony today, but we are also aware that the ambassador has uh, text messages or emails uh, on a personal device which have been provided to the State Department, although we have requested those from the ambassador, and the State Department is withholding those messages as well. Yeah, you know what? There's no good faith on either side here anymore, folks. Democrats have approached this all with a partisan vengeance. Not just this, but everything about Trump. I mean, they, they have no respect for their offices in the Congress, no respect for uh, constitutional separation of powers. And so I, I think that what Trump and the whole White House understands is just fight them every step of the way. Use the fight back with the process. Slow them down. This is what the Democrats excel at doing. Use the process as the punishment. Use the process as a weapon. This is what this whole impeachment inquiry is. OK, so you know what Republicans are doing, or at least what Trump is doing. Some Republicans Thank you, Mitt Romney, or you know, trying to make it harder for him. They're saying we're going to go. We're going to go as slow as we can here. We're going to. You're going to have to negotiate with us for some of this stuff. They should start exerting executive executive privilege left and right. They should do whatever they have to do so that these Democrats cannot cannot just run free and trash this president without any consequences. Enough is enough. We're in a fight. We need to recognize that. And, you know, Adam Schiff can call it whatever he wants. Oh, here he is. Play 24. The failure to produce this witness, the failure to produce these documents, um, we consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. But, you know, the Democrats haven't subpoenaed Ambassador Sondland yet. So they're just asking right now. Do you know what the White House is saying? Nope. Not going to do it. Sorry. So now they can they can subpoena them. Okay, fine. Uh, but you see, Congress is already because they've they've done this all over the place. They've been using the process as a weapon against Trump all along. They are already enmeshed in litigation over former White House officials and whether they can testify. And guess what? Some of that in the courts might take months, might even take a year, year and a half. Oh, too bad, Democrats. See you in court. You know, this is what they forget. The same Democrats who will say, well, one federal judge with a universal injunction can tell Trump that he can't set up the Remain in Mexico program or he can't do, you know, he can't do anything as the executive of the federal government because some federal judge says so based on some bizarre, phony interpretation of federal statute. Well, guess what? We, we have a process, too. White House is just going to say, nope, not going to do it. Nope, not going to go. Sorry. See you in court. That's the right approach. And Republicans, and I'm seeing some say, well, Trump needs to respect that. No, no, no. 
Now, this, this process is not being done in good faith, so we get to use the process, too. You know, it's like if someone sues you, well, countersue. Sue them back. If they're being unfair, if they're being unreasonable, or, or just get taken advantage of. I mean, this, again, reminds me of the separation between the ideologically pure conservatives and the wartime conservatives. People say, well, this is the long-term implications of the president fighting in this way might, you know, not, not, might not make uh, von Mises and Fr- uh, Friedrich Hayek and the founding fathers happy. And, okay, that's great. That's something, you know, you keep that at your, at your think tank luncheon. This president is under assault from all sides, and he's just saying, all right, I'm going to use the powers that my administration has to not allow this assault to continue unobstructed obstruct the assault i say yeah go for it the president understands what's at stake and he knows how the other side's willing to fight based on the unfair and partisan process that mr schiff has been running you think about what the democrats are trying to do impeach the president of the united states 13 months prior to an election based on an anonymous whistleblower with no first-hand knowledge who has a bias against the president and the guy running the process chairman schiff didn't even tell us that he had met with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower filing the complaint. Adam Schiff didn't tell us that the way he treated Ambassador Sondland last week in this, excuse me, Ambassador uh, Volker in this uh, interview last week, that's, that treatment is, is the reason why the administration, the State Department said we're not going to subject Ambassador Sondland to the same treatment. Yeah, because last week, you know what they did? They they misrepresented what Ambassador Volker said, which is that there was no quid pro quo and he was far more favorable to Trump than the initial news report suggested. And they were doing all this in secret. We're not idiots. We know why they're doing it in secret, because Democrats want to control the story. They want to control the narrative. So they release the information they want, and then everything else gets left on the cutting room floor and maybe... You know, Republicans will get it out or maybe somebody in in media on the right will be honest about what's happening. We'll we'll find that information, but it's unlikely. So we we cannot let the the bureaucrat mindset of the left just be this asset that we don't know how to counter. We do know how to counter. Don't comply. Make them take you to court. I, I had a friend who once who once told me that. I was asking about some real estate stuff, and he said, look, you know, the major, major uh, real estate holders in places like New York City, they, you, you go through a process with them, and then eventually, if, if things just get too contentious, they just put you in the, you know, in the, uh, in the blank, blank off pile, meaning that now it just goes to court. They're, they're not, now they don't want to negotiate, they don't want to talk, see you in court, that's it. You know, if you're, if you're not going to be fair-minded about it, and now some of them obviously abuse this, too, because they have deep pockets. And if they're dealing with a tenant dispute or something. But, you you know, once you go into that pile, then it just turns into, all right, now the process. Now we both get to deal with this irritation, you know, but that's the that's really the ultimate sanction that some of these landlords in particular will have. Is they'll say, all right, well, now we go into the process. And that's what's going on here with Republicans and Democrats or with the White House, I should say, and the Democrats. All right. Now this is just we're going to do everything we can to not comply. Because we understand what they're trying to do here. You got House Democrats are, as I mentioned before, trying to keep the whistleblower's identity from Republicans, not just from the public, from Republicans, uh, because they're worried that a loyalist to President Trump might tell the public the whistleblower's identity. Look, if if this whistleblower were not, you know, 
John Brennan's best buddy, pretty much, or somebody who's a devotee of Clapper and Brennan and Comey, if this weren't someone who they would immediately be on the defensive trying to claim that this person wasn't an anti-Trump hack, it would have already come forward. You, you, you know, this, this person, I'm sure, would want the Blasey Ford treatment, Time Magazine cover, books, speeches, all that stuff, become a, he- a hero of the resistance. And, and really, there's, there's some degree of, of cowardice that's obvious. I mean, this is a political decision. This is a political move to come out against the president. If you really think that he's threatening the health of the republic, you're not willing to take the risk of standing up and having your voice heard and, and facing, your, facing the accused in this case, who is the president and his supporters. People take much bigger risks on behalf of the government every day. I say the whistleblower is a coward. Myself and six other members of the freshman class in Congress, all former military or former CIA, wrote a joint op-ed and came out in support of an impeachment inquiry. And I wanted you to know from me, I wanted you to know from me... was when you joined the coup against our country. What's the rush with the impeachment? The impeachment is a serious thing. This would be only the fourth president in the history to be impeached and to try to impeach him on something like this. It is really stretching. That's uh, Representative Slotkin. And turns out that she, uh, at that town hall, wasn't getting... By the way, I think that that, that uh, town hall goer said four presidents. It's only, it's only, only two presidents have been impeached everyone always says nixon nixon was not impeached all right we need to let's all let's all remember that andrew johnson was impeached back in uh, 1868 for firing a cabinet secretary without the consent of congress um here this is the the storyline on this was that johnson tried to force out secretary of war edwin m stanton in 1867 for conspiring with his political enemies. And then Republicans moved for impeachment. Their first ch- uh, shot at this in December of 1867 didn't work out. But then in 1868, they managed to get it done. And the House passed the resolution of impeachment and then had uh, issued 11 articles that laid out the charges against President Johnson. And they said that he uh, Johnson had violated the recently passed Tenure of Service Act in the Stanton affair. That's the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Um, the Senate uh, came close but did not convict him. Each time fell short of the two-thirds majority to remove him from office. So no president has ever been impeached and removed. Nixon resigned. Maybe Democrats are hoping here because I again I'm I'm out here in Las in Las Vegas and I'm talking to all kinds of folks and I had someone who uh, thinks he's pretty connected with the Democrats say to me last night over drinks that that Trump's not going to finish out he's not even going to make it to 2020 he's going to resign and I I do believe that this is something that is a, is a rumor that gets out there for a bunch of reasons one is that it's something that Democrats just like to hear they like the the possibility the prospect of the president just throwing in the towel that would make them very very happy not just because he wouldn't be president which of course would be a huge thing for them but also it would show that they finally broke him that he just couldn't handle it anymore i gotta say i would never i would never 
bet on this president throwing in the towel. That's that is one area that it's it's not going to happen. Um, but they tell themselves this, and this is also a way to get a whole lot of of media attention for oneself. Just say, well, I don't believe. I've seen so many really lazy and boring pundits on TV say, well, I'm hearing from my sources the president's not even going to finish out his his first term. The president's going to finish out his first term. And what really is is the point of impeachment, by the way? Does any person think that there's going to be a two-thirds vote in the Senate to remove this president? No, you'll have a straight party line vote of Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans, although maybe even a few Senate Democrats will defect. They did with Kavanaugh. There are a few, you know, Manchin in West Virginia, he knew the people of West Virginia, thank God, were smart enough to know exactly what was going on with the Kavanaugh, Blasey Ford, Ramirez, Swetnick ambush. They knew. It was, I think the, the polling in West Virginia at the time was something like uh, getting upwards of nearly 70% of West Virginians didn't think that Kavanaugh did anything wrong. So, yeah, you're darn right that Senator Manchin of West Virginia was like, I think I'm going to vote for this guy's confirmation. Yeah, good idea, buddy. Right now, the reality of the political reality of impeachment is something that people mostly have to take some guess at. They don't really know. Nobody really has a has a because you can't know there's some aspect of this that will be determined in the future, which is why the current news outlet machinery is built the way that it is or, or is is pumping out the stuff the way that it is uh, so that they'll try to influence public opinion to make an impeachment a more uh, popular process than it has been or, you know, then then make it popular enough that they're not concerned about the backlash against somebody. You know, you had uh, Elise Slotkin here at a town hall in Michigan saying that she's going to, uh, that she thinks that we need to impeach the president and some people at the town hall now, they're probably Republicans. I don't know who knows. The point is that there's at least some anecdotal reason to believe that enough Americans who are paying attention, who are informed understand exactly what this impeachment effort is. It's not about new information coming to light. It's not about, oh, the president, he's done all these terrible things that we've just discovered just in time for an impeachment to get done right before the 2020 election. No, it's it's clear to people that the only crime the president's really guilty of is winning the 2016 election. And that's a crime that he will never be forgiven for by the Democrats. They will never let this go. And they will also not accept that the last, well, going into the 2020 election, that the first four years of Trump's presidency were a true presidency. Now, you know that I'm fond of uh, Occam's razor. What is more likely, that Bush was an illegitimate president in 2000, that Trump is an illegitimate president now, or that Democrats are a bunch of babies who can't accept that sometimes their candidate loses because they internalize politics in a way that is unhealthy and psychologically destabilizing, and it has become a part of the left's political culture to do so. What, what's more likely? Republicans always cheat or Democrats are crybabies? I think we know the answer. This is not a joke. Trump has never said he was joking. Plus, you know, he's tweeted this in reference to a China request, quote, as lawyers and others have stated as president, I have an obligation to look into possible or probable corruption. So, Rick, since, since Trump himself isn't using this as a defense, why are Republicans... 
Because Republicans are living in a, in a climate uh, that they've lived in for several years now of absolute fear of Donald Trump. They fear him more than losing their honor. They fear them more than losing their integrity. They fear a tweet from Donald Trump more than than the most dangerous, you know, poisonous snake. There is there is a sense of terror that they don't want to cross him. They'll look for any excuse, no matter how risible and how silly, um, to use to try to defend him. And this whole he's just joking. He's pranking the, the media. It's a very, very thin read to cling to. And I think it's one that they will regret doing in a few days because, of course, these things always reveal themselves that, you know, he did ask it. It was serious. He wasn't joking. These things never work out this, the way the spin looks at first for the Republican Party. That's a very good encapsulation, I think, of what Trump derangement syndrome, uh, one of its primary claims, which is that everyone is so afraid of Trump and that's why they won't turn on him. Because that's that's a more comfortable narrative for Democrats to believe in, that the president is is just terrifying to all other Republicans. And that's why we haven't all just said, oh, yeah, let's go back to the glory days of Mitt Romney as our standard bearer. Hi, I'm Mitt Romney. Like I'm in Delaware. Kind of worked. Uh, Mitt Romney just goes to show you Republicans will turn on the leader of the party this never happens with Democrats. I, I was just noting this. It, it, you never have Democrat uh, members of Congress who really turn on leadership, whether it's Pelosi or Obama or, you know, Hillary. They are all in lockstep with whoever the standard bearer is for the party because they want power first and foremost. You know, that was Rick Wilson on CNN there. And look, Rick is is as anti-Trump as anybody who has ever claimed to be. I don't know if he's one of these people who switch parties now. There are some never Trumpers who switch parties. He's as anti-Trump as anybody I, I've ever heard anywhere. Uh, but I also think that this is a very simplistic way of thinking about Trump supporters. And it's a very wrong way of thinking about Trump supporters, because I look at what he's doing and I say it's not that I'm terrified or, or that the people that I know who really support this president are terrified of his displeasure. Uh, I like the things that he's doing. You know, the moment that the conversation turns from Trump's personality and his tweets and what he may or may not have said to somebody at some point about something, when it's what is he doing as president? He's on very solid, very strong ground. And he compares quite favorably with his predecessor on on policy and on decision making, uh, his predecessor being Barack Obama, who, look, I think Barack Obama had a an incredibly uh limited understanding of economics and markets. And I think he was at some level also hostile to free markets and capitalism. You know, social justice is a more important goal than freedom, free markets and the uh, capitalist system. I, I think that Obama did believe that. And he was moving the country toward socialism without being willing to say that that was his goal. But, you know, spread the wealth around, share the wealth, all, all these sentiments that you would you would hear the former president say what I see now with President uh, Trump is somebody who has a, an instinctual and hands on grasp of exactly what it means to be trying to promote opportunity, prosperity and growth, wealth. That's really what we mean. You know, we, we want to live in a society where everyone has so much uh, so much material abundance that you don't have to think about those basic needs. I mean, that that's really the goal. 
But the only way to get there is not to have the government engage in massive central planning. The only way to get there is not to have bureaucrats administering this enormous welfare state. It's through the accumulation of wealth and technological progress and overall prosperity where, you know, human problems day in and day out, food, clothing, shelter, medicine, these things are easily solvable and and people can deal with them on their own in ways that they never really have to think about it again. You, know, you think about the, the your you wake up and what you deal with right now, what your day to day struggles and challenges may be versus what they would have been even 150, 200 years ago. Quite different. Right. We are still and it's very hard to think in these terms because we we can't really accept it. It's hard for people to accept that we are living in the safest, most prosperous, most wondrous period of human history right now as I am speaking to you. And America in particular is at a at a high point of of power and wealth and. And uh, there you look at all these things and. There's no appreciation for it from the anti-Trump left. And I'll be honest with you, I think there's not that much appreciation for it from a lot of people across the country, including some who are uh, not just Republicans, but are generally supportive of Trump. I mean, I, I focus on what does this president want to do that will make our lives better, not whether or not he is stylistically palatable to Democrats. So, for example, when he talks about the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, which we do need a cooler uh, Azumka, or, you know, USMCA is not a great acronym and it's not a great name for an agreement. Uh, but this is an important thing that the president has taken on as a major policy initiative that y- you barely ever hear about. But I'm glad you listened to the show because at least you'll hear about it sometimes here. 17. This deal is remarkable in that it will ensure that Americans have a level playing field in trading, cutting edge products and service such as videos, music, ebooks, and software. These comprehensive provisions meet the gold standard of digital trade rules that was set in the landmark USMCA. And again, we hope that's going to get voted on. We hope that Nancy Pelosi gets it voted on because everyone wants it and uh, she'll have to make her own decision. Let her make her own decision. But I can tell you the American public is tired of do nothing. And we are doing a lot and the Democrats are doing nothing. Thriving commerce between the United States and Japan is essential to advancing opportunity and prosperity for our people. The United States and Japan are the world's largest and third largest economies. Making progress despite the fact that Democrats aren't just engaged in obstruction, but they're on a on a seek and destroy mission against this president. Um, And, you know, for the media, also, you have to remember, a lot of this is very personal. A lot of this is about the individuals who are overpaid babies in the media who are highly replaceable but think that they're really important and unique. They're this they're they're they're, they're an amazing voice that we really need to hear from. Uh, you know, Joe Scarborough, someone who was very, very much under the the president's wing for a while. I mean, really thought the president was just great and having him on a show then they had a personal falling out. And now we're supposed to think that, I mean, if Scarborough had any integrity, he would probably just say, I need to recuse myself from discussions of the president, at least on a personal level. Uh, but instead, he thinks that he's adding to the conversation and the discussion by constantly mocking 
President Trump. Play uh, play 21. I'm sorry, my great and unmatched wisdom. Uh, he has the great and unmatched wisdom of Chief Wiggum on the Simpsons. I'm just worried about the people who still stand yeah. up for him. Do not see yeah. that we've got a president who works. Well, the food. thing is, Mika, many Republicans uh, don't see great and unmatched wisdom in the Syria decision. They see more Krusty the Clown or Chief Wiggum. And, and actually, uh, they are voicing... Uh, their complaints. I'm pretty sure that Mika there said that the president works for Putin, which is a, a, a thing to say that is so stupid that I'm surprised that that even Mika would say it. But that's I'm pretty sure that that is what she said. The president works for Putin and a, a, a shockingly uh, unfair, lacking in evidence and, and just absurd claim. But this is what if you're going on MSNBC, you have to tell that audience what they want to hear. And what they want is a steady stream of Trump is the worst. He's awful. He's a disgrace. He's disgusting. He's a traitor, a traitor. Democrats have really said this about this president. And then they also get very, very smug and sanctimonious on Trump's decision in Syria uh, which I talked to you about yesterday, and I, I have some more thoughts on that today, which we're going to do in a moment. But I wanted to start by saying this. Many of the loudest voices you hear on the Trump-Syria decision, many of those voices are pretending to care a whole lot about the Kurds and about our national honor and what will this mean for us going forward with other allies and all this stuff. Okay, there are m- many people that are saying that, who really just view this as an opportunity to bash Trump. They don't care about what's going on with the Kurds in Syria. They just see this as a moment when there can be another point of attack against this presidency. And they don't stop and think, well, hold on a second. What if what if Trump is, in fact, making just just as an American, as a human being, what if he is making a decision that he believes is the best one because ultimately it will protect and save American lives. I want to explore that with you a little bit because I don't think that I think there are very few people who are seeing the Syria equation the way that they should right now. And I think it's very easy. Look, I, I don't think that the way that Trump has done this is necessary is, is the way that, that it should have been done. Uh, the suddenness of it, although I do have an explanation, I think, for that. Let, let me get into more of this in just a moment. Well, we've been in Syria for a long time, and it was supposed to be a very short hit and a hit on ISIS, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, they never left, and they've been there for many, many years. And we are, uh, we were down to very few soldiers in Syria. We had 50 in the region that you're talking about, 50 soldiers. And they've been already moved out. But we'll see what happens with respect to a lot of different things. We've told Turkey. I spoke with President Erdogan of Turkey, and I said, uh, got to treat him good. you got to take care of ISIS. Don't forget, we've captured, we defeated this group largely, defeated ISIS 100 percent of the caliphate, 100 percent. And we wanted to do 100 percent. I was going to do this nine months ago. And we were not at 100 percent, but we were pretty close. Of course, the anti-Trump voices out there are seizing on Trump's decision to 
uh, pull U.S. forces out of northern Syria and allow for the uh, the Turkish military to effectively take control. And they've already started bombing some areas in, in northern Syria that are held by our Kurdish allies. Let's so I, I here here's the basic version of events that you get from people who hate the president. So let's let's start with that, okay? That President Trump is feckless, doesn't care about anything, that he makes decisions off the cuff, on a whim, hasn't thought about this at all, didn't consult with allies, is betraying our Kurdish allies on the ground. Uh, you know, he's watches too much cable news and doesn't read enough briefing books and he doesn't care about the military or anything else. He only cares about himself. I mean, that's that's basically what you're hearing from everybody that really bashes Trump on this. There's the more there's the more nuanced point of view or the more fair minded approach to this, which is still very critical. And that's the president is leaving allies high and dry, but. He's not doing it out of out of spite. He's doing it because he thinks that this is the right thing to do. And he's consulted with uh, consulted with people at the highest level of the. Uh, oh, here you go. You actually the president. Claiming he told people that he's had these discussions at the highest level play uh, play 15. I consulted with everybody. Uh, I always consult with everybody. Uh, if you remember, about eight months ago, I talked about doing this, and we kept 2,000 people there and then slowly brought them out. But once we captured ISIS, I didn't see, I don't want to stay there for the next 40 years. I'm not going to do anything. The end game is going to be the same. Uh, I have great respect for all of the people that you named, and they have their opinion, and a lot of people do. And I could also name... Many more than you just named of people that totally are supportive. You see the names coming out. People are extremely thrilled because they say it's time to bring our people back home. We're not a police force. They're policing the area. We're not a police force. Uh, the U.K. was very thrilled at this decision. As you know, they're over there. They have soldiers over there also and others. But many people agree with it very strongly. And I understand both sides of it. I fully understand both sides of it. But I campaigned on the fact that I was going to bring our, our soldiers home and bring them home as rapidly as possible. I, we, all together, you, we defeated and took over 100 percent of the ISIS caliphate. Everybody said that was going to be an impossible thing to do. I did it, and I did it quickly because we have a great military now. When I took over our military, we didn't have ammunition. I was told by a top general, maybe the top of them all, sir, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have ammunition. I said, I'll never let another president have that happen to him or her. You know what the president doesn't get credit for? The ra- uh, rapid destruction of the caliphate, uh, the Islamic State in, in Iraq and Syria. The president changed rules of engagement empowered four deployed military forces to make decisions about who to hit, who to strike, changed from the Obama administration uh, decision-making, which was, oh, we can't hit that. There might be civilian casualties, or we can't hit that because who knows what that is. And Trump said, look, if we're going to fight, we're going to destroy these evil, sadistic jihadists in the Islamic State, then why don't we unleash our forces in a way where they can really do what they do? And the the air war was dramatically escalated. We had U.S. troops embedded with the uh, Kurdish uh, YPG forces. And 
they took Raqqa and all this happened and we did not we didn't lose a thousand troops. We didn't lose a hundred troops. We didn't lose a single U.S. soldier in the taking of Raqqa. This is a tremendous military success. Tremendous. And it happened under this president. Do you ever hear about that? You know, for all the people say that he's such an idiot, he doesn't think things through, he doesn't know anything, he doesn't read enough. First of all, do any of those people think that Obama was really well-versed in military tactics and history? And I mean, are they kidding? Obama didn't, Obama didn't know the difference between, you know, a musket and an M4 when he came into office. I mean, we're really going to pretend that he knew something? It's just it's laughable. But Trump comes into office... The Islamic State is finally crushed. No more of the, the, the torture videos and the electrocuting people and letting them on fire and grabbing foreign aid workers, all the stuff that they were doing. That's done. Does Trump get any credit for any of that? No. I mean, he's the commander in chief. He made decisions that mattered. And now he's making another, another decision. Now, is it, is it a painful trade-off? And I think this is the way perhaps the best way that I can describe my feelings on this, is it a painful trade-off to prevent a U.S. encroachment in Syria in terms of the mission, mission creep? Um, in order to prevent that, we must not create a long-term commitment and presence to the Kurds of northern Syria. I, I think the answer there is, well, that's what Trump is willing to do. Does it mean that some of our Kurdish allies are going to be in a more difficult position than they would have otherwise? It does. It does. But I have to ask you this. If I told you that the, the real uh, choice here was whether we would be willing to not only continue our presence there, but w- what happens if the Turks launch a strike and they, they hit a facility and, and there are some Americans who are killed? Or what happens if we tell the, the Turks, hey, don't, don't hit this area. Those are our guys. And we have soldiers on the ground and they do it anyway. You know, what are we really, really willing to do? What are the costs we're willing to bear in order to continue? Remember, the, the Islamic State was a threat to the Kurds. The Islamic State was trying to eliminate and eradicate the Kurds in Syria. So it's not like they just did us a favor out of the kindness of their hearts. We were allies against a common enemy. Now, they were valiant and they did their part. And we we do owe them. But how much do we owe them? How long? Now, I think a lot of you are saying, well, Buck, I think we owe them more than we're giving them right now. And, I, and that's, that's, a, that's fair to me. That's a fair criticism. Uh, so the fact that you have the, the Turks already launching some airstrikes and going after some Kurdish positions right away is an indicator of, I think, what is to come. And we should, I mean, if, if it were me, I would, tell the, I would tell the Turks, look, and if I'm President Trump, I mean, this is, so this this is how I would handle it, I guess, is what I'm saying. I would tell the Turks, you you uh, better not take major offensive action against our allies. If we find out that you're, you know, atta- you know, you're uh, taking out or detaining and executing or uh, any of the, to to Kurds that fought with us that have not come after Turkish soldiers or you know, maybe we have a conversation whether Turkey really should be in NATO. I mean, I, I would I would go big on this issue because I think the Turks also need to be put in the, you know, they need to be put back in the in the corner a little bit here. They've been really unhelpful in a number of ways as an ally for a long time. They essentially opened up their border to Islamic State uh, fighters to cross from Turkey into Syria for a long time. 
And the Turks, the resistance that they want to use against Assad in Syria are basically al-Qaeda. So the Turkish military, while they're well, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, the Kurds are terrorists. They're, they'll work with terrorists all day. They don't care. Just they'll work with the terrorists that they like more. You know, they'll work with people that are willing to engage in transnational jihadist terrorism as long as they're helpful and they're proxies on the ground in Syria. So that's, that's another component of this. But this is, a, this is a tough call. What we don't want, what we do, and what the president says he promised people he would avoid, is the continuation of what has been the, sta- what has been the standard operating procedure for the U.S. and the Middle East for quite some time now, which is basically we see a problem, we get involved, and then we just never, the problem is not really possible for us to fix but we refuse to accept that this is not really our problem anymore. Uh, we don't want to have 50 soldiers, 500 soldiers, 5,000 soldiers in Syria. Syria is a fractured country. It doesn't really even exist anymore as a country. The Assad regime is still in charge of the major population centers. There's still ISIS elements running around. There's Al-Qaeda elements running around. Iranians are there. Russians are there. I mean, Syria is a mess we really want to have a military stake in this proxy battle where we have our troops in harm's way? Uh, just remember that we, we tried under, under the Reagan administration. We were part of a multinational coalition to try and help uh, stop or at least limit the fighting in Beirut, stabilize things in Beirut. And that's how we ended up with the bombing of the Marine barracks and losing hundreds of Marines and and uh, and sailors in one day. That could happen again. You know, we, we are not being in Syria is not the same thing as being in Okinawa or in Seoul, South Korea. Being in Syria means that there is always a threat level. And I think that the American people, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong on this, but I really believe we, we're just we're tired of fighting other people's battles for them. ISIS was our battle. Stabilizing Syria is not. Because it's not going to happen. And it also detracts from, you know, there's only so much decision-making that our government's capable of doing at any one time. There's only so many projects that they can really take on and try to handle. But to pretend that this is a, a simplistic conversation, which is what you're seeing, because it's, to pretend it's simple, it's binary, smart or dumb, doing what Trump is doing is just idiotic, that's just what people are saying because it's useful for bashing the president and you know a perfect example of this is former national security advisor in the obama administration susan rice was on the colbert show last night here's what she said 26 our our present uh, president has just announced a withdrawal of u.s troops uh from syria allowing turkey to come in and really have their way with the kurds who they label a ter- terrorist organization um what does this mean to stability in that region? Stephen, I woke up this morning to hear that news, and as I do, it seems like six days a week, I just put my head in my hands. This is bad crazy. <laughs> now, keep in mind that Susan Rice is the one who said that a video upset people and that that's what led to Benghazi. Right. That complex terrorist attack on multiple U.S. facilities where they brought in uh, heavy weapons and, and long-range mortars. Yeah, that was just people upset at a video. 
a YouTube video that no one even really heard of until all of a sudden the U.S. government started making a big deal of it because there were some protests. Huh. Susan Rice, who was part of the decision to topple the Gaddafi regime in Libya. What, well, how has that worked out for us? Oh, now, now Libya is a disaster. Refugee crisis, stronghold for ISIS on, the, uh, east, on its eastern shore. That, that's what's happened. Oh, okay. And, and how they handle how they handle Syria under the Obama administration? What, 500,000 dead. 500,000 dead. That's And the rise of the Islamic State, which got as far as to threaten. People forget, we U.S. Apache helicopters were flying out of Baghdad and providing close air support to Iraqi forces trying to hold back ISIS forces on the outskirts of uh of what was sort of the outer belts of Baghdad, they'd call it. I believe it, I believe they made it as far as uh, as far as Ramadi at one point. Um, we you know, we were flying close air support to stop the Islamic State's advance. That'll happen in the Obama administration. Ah, oh, but but now it's it's fun to just poke at the president and say that he's an idiot. Ha ha ha! It's crazy. Now these are very tough decisions. But I'll tell you this much: the president has yet to deliver to Americans or to the world, a foreign policy disaster anywhere near what we had to suffer through under the Obama administration. And, oh, by the way, all remember remember when jihadist terror attacks were happening on U.S. soil and happening abroad and against our allies, uh, just in a way that there was, a, there was a, a stunning regularity to it? Where did all that go? What happened there? Huh. Obama was in office, a lot of terrorist attacks, rise of ISIS, very bad things happening. ISIS, not just in Iraq and Syria, all over the world. Trump's in office. Where are all those big jihadist terror attacks? Huh. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't that noteworthy? We just want to see a humane solution. Did you tell Xi Jinping in any way that you would be quiet about the Hong Kong protests during the course of these negotiations? No, I didn't. But I do say that we are negotiating. If anything happened bad, I think that would be a very bad thing for the negotiation. I think politically it would be very tough, uh, maybe for us and maybe for some others and maybe for him. But, uh, no, I I think that uh, they have to do that in a peaceful manner. It's uh, I, I will say the first time I saw it, if you look a number of months ago, I saw two million people. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, we talk about crowd size. That was serious crowd size, right? Uh, the crowd size is much smaller now. So maybe that's saying something. Oh, you see, this is where I have to say I, I, I understand that there's a difficult calculation. Now we've, we've moved to the foreign policy of U.S. and China and, and Hong Kong. I understand that the president really wants to get this trade deal. It'd be very good for the American people. It is it is hard to ignore the relative quiet from this president who, you know, dubbed Kim Jong-un rocket man and threatened, I forget what his words were, but essentially annihilation against North Korea if they stepped out of line. That this president doesn't really doesn't really care to uh have any strong words for Xi Jinping over the the what seems like the very real possibility of a, a Tiananmen Square style crackdown on the protests. Now they're already using violence against protesters in Hong Kong, but I, I mean a a mass uh, a paramilitary incursion where there are people getting killed uh, and where they're and we don't even really know by the way what the body count was in Tiananmen. The Chinese have tried to cover it up for a very long time. 
but you know, again, this is a tough, uh, a tough, a tough, a tough call for Trump, and I don't think he's handled the way I would have at this point. But then again, Trump does some things that I wouldn't do that work out quite well. We'll have to see. Let's talk about some leftists for a few minutes. All right, let's let's get into it. I do want to have some updates for you on. The uh, Democrat candidates, you know, what's going on with Elizabeth Warren? There's some very uh, interesting stuff that is uh, happening out there right now on the campaign trail, and we'll get to it. But I have not yet forgotten about uh, Monsieur Trudeau, who does not sound like this, but I want to make it sound like he does because uh, something about him strikes me as a tiny bit French, a tiny bit uh, left wing, a tiny bit uh, super uh, liberal, super progressive. And uh, Trudeau, as you know, has had a really bad couple of weeks here in politics. Uh, Not always Canadian, but remember, he's someone who in the early days was held up as uh, held up very favorably against Trump. You know, he's so he's so polished and worldly and smooth and progressive. And he's a self-described feminist and uh, I'm someone who does not like to mansplain. I am. I understand my, I check my privilege. I uh, don't like to uh, sit here and be a uh, cisgender male who does not understand that, uh, you know, all that stuff, right? He, he, he speaks, do not say mankind, say humankind. Uh, he, he speaks in a way that is meant to always appeal to the woke progressives, right? The, the social justice concerned left. And then we found out that this is a guy who has a, a bizarre, not an incident of blackface, a history of blackface multiple times and, and really, uh, really got after it. I mean, not just painting his face dark, but also his arms and his, you know, just this whole thing was and he did this at parties and it was in horrible taste and it was just. So interesting that a guy who holds himself up in many ways as a model of liberalism, leftism, feminism, wokeness, you know, he is the progressive beta male, uh, you know, par excellence. He's the guy who's the uh, exemplar that a lot of other people point to. See, that's what we, we want guys to be more like Trudeau. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because then we found out that he had this blackface issue and he did what you see so many leftists do, which is the excuse for the hypocrisy comes through their devotion to left wing policy items. And this is a seductive, a seductive thing for a lot of people. Think about this. If you are just someone who is willing to do what the left wants you to do. Your sins can be, even your sins against wokeness, against leftism, can be washed away. Harvey Weinstein tried this with, I'm going to take on the NRA. It's like, no, you sexual assaulting, alleged sexual, I think he hasn't been convicted yet, alleged sexual assaulting and groping and just domineering maniac. Uh, That's not going to cut it. You don't just get to say, well, I'm going to go after the NRA now. Trudeau pulled that. We talked about this a week or two ago where he goes, yes, I'm uh, I don't want to talk about the, uh, the incidents in the past. I want to talk about um, banning all assault rifles 
Because Vox and HuffPost and these other uh, very wimpy, left-wing, absurd, but unfortunately, uh, you know, culturally somewhat powerful institutions. You know, there are people that read that stuff and don't think that it's total crap. Those places uh, usually would say, okay, you know, fine, he's doing what we want him to do. Therefore, we, we give him a pass. You could essentially buy a second chance from the left as long as you will pursue the policies that they want you to. That's, that's the trade-off. That's the, the deal that they make. Well, Justin Trudeau was uh, asked by a Canadian journalist. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm making Trudeau sound too cool, actually. He, just, he kind of actually just sounds more like a like a dorky Canadian guy who kind of says A and talks like this and has a little bit of a Canadian accent. And uh, he doesn't really have a French accent at all. So maybe I should stop. I'm starting to make him sound like Pepe Le Pew. I am the prime minister of Canada. I want to come over and uh, hold you close and uh, hear your heartbeat with my ear because that's how you hear things. Um, but he did, in fact, get asked a question about his recent, uh, the the uh, unveiling of the photos of him and the recent racial scandal that has resulted from it. And I'm just going to play this for you because this was a real, this is a real, uh, it's a real wow moment when you see how delusional this guy is and how disingenuous Trudeau is. And he just expects that he'll, he'll get through this thing that should, should. And remember, he's running for reelection. This should have, this should be donezo. But he knows that, the left doesn't care about hypocrisy as long as you'll give them what they want. But uh, do me a favor, play, play. We're going to let you listen to this whole exchange. Play clip four. Hi, Mr. Trudeau. Since your multiple use of blackface became an international scandal, Canada's international reputation has been irreparably harmed. Have you reached out to any African leaders or any leaders from the Middle East to apologize for your conduct? Canada will continue to engage in a positive, constructive way around the world, standing up for human rights, uh, engaging uh, with leaders right around the world, because we know that uh, promoting our values and uh, prosperity for everyone around the world is good for Canadians and creates better opportunities for everyone. So that didn't answer the question at all. Have you spoken Wait, we, to any African leaders or leaders from the Middle East to apologize for, for your here? personal conduct? So... I like that the journalist is like, that did not answer the question at all, because it didn't. But that was amazing. Trudeau is asked about this, and he, he, he literally launches into, we will continue to engage and to promote our values. and to This is the most boilerplate, non-sequitur, diversionary garbage you could ever imagine. He was asked a specific question. Have you reached out to any leaders from any... Uh, of the foreign countries that you you know interact with and, and and apologize for your previous conduct. Now he could say I I want to move you know I I've already dealt with this I don't move. but no no instead he goes into Trudeau progressive robot mode and starts talking about how yes I will engage with leaders all over the world and promote our values and continue to work in cooperation with I mean just bureaucraties that he launches into here. And the journalist, to his credit, is like, well, that was ridiculous. <laughs> that, was, that was a non-answer of, uh, of epic proportions to my answer. Keep, keep playing it. So that didn't answer the question at all. Have you spoken to any African leaders or leaders from the Middle East to apologize for your personal conduct? Uh, 
I have continued to engage with leaders around the world in a responsible way during an election campaign. My focus is. Uh, is that the end of the clip? Because we got there. Was, he goes on to get into a discussion of uh, climate change. That's right. He says what you saw tonight is some people want to fight climate change and some people don't. And I want to fight climate change. So so he, he repeats the boilerplate about engaging with world leaders. Right. He's just not going to he's going to pretend like the question hasn't really been answered. But then, in a sense, he ups the ante. He, he raises his uh, his progressive game a little bit here by saying, well, let's just talk about how I want to fight. You know, I want to fight climate change. What this exchange really was, is a journalist asked him a very straightforward question. And his response is, I will engage with leaders and fight climate change. It's almost like we said, uh, hey, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Are you going to appear tomorrow and give a speech uh, like this one? He goes, I will engage with world leaders and I will work against climate change. Like, it, it doesn't matter what you say to him, what you ask him. He's just locked in on this. H- how can how can any I, I just have to ask this. How can any liberal, how can any progressive in Canada think that they are supportive of this culture of sensitivity, of uh, inclusiveness and diversity and lack of lack of being offensive or a, a very serious uh, desire to avoid avoid giving offense at any in any reason uh, you know this is all just these are ways of describing wokeness how can any canadian think that they adhere to that that that's a part of their of their existence and still vote for this guy i, I got to tell you for people that say oh how could you handle trump as your president of america i've had some foreigners tell me that recently obviously they don't sound like that but I was going to say, what, you mean like we're supposed to be held to some standard? Look at who Canada's prime minister is, man. I mean, our, our brothers and sisters up to the, the great cold north of Canada. And, you know, they got this guy. Is I know he's the prime minister's son. That's something that can we just, and this is a both sides thing. Can we just get rid of nepotism in politics, folks? Can we, can we become more sophisticated as republics, as, as countries that vote for their elected leaders? Can we stop voting for people based on their last name on all sides? I really this was one of my big problems with uh, Jeb Bush in the primary against Trump. Why is Jeb Bush? Because he's a Bush. Well, he's competent, they'd say. And he's, you know, yeah, well, there are a lot of competent people. But this guy's really running. I mean, the the X factor for Jeb Bush was that he was a Bush. The X factor for Hillary Clinton was that she was a Clinton. I mean, you go down the list and, you know, I, I do not like political dynasties and we have just fallen into that in this country people at one point wanted to make caroline kennedy a senator from new york just because her name was kennedy woman hadn't done anything are we allowed to say this is bizarre that we're not going to do this anymore i mean trudeau is the son of a former prime minister pierre pierre trudeau i'm hoping i do not know but i'm hoping that pierre trudeau sounds more like this he's uh he likes to go and chop down the large tree and wears a lumberjack shirt and uh throw the snowballs at uh, people and uh, things like this. I don't know if, uh, did Pierre, uh, I got to look up a Pierre Trudeau clip. He probably doesn't sound like a, a a lumberjack from Manitoba. Or I guess it wouldn't be Manitoba if he was French. It would have to be Quebec. A lumberjack from Quebec, Pierre Trudeau, prime minister, but also chasing the moose and cutting the tree. All right, so I promised you, I uh, know we were talking about Trudeau there, I promised you we would get into some of the latest stuff with the uh, the Democrats. And... Here is what I would say about it. Um, 
One, I mean, there, there are a number of different things going on right now. One is that you have Elizabeth Warren. Another, another question about Elizabeth Warren's truthfulness on issues of her of her life and what led her to this point in politics and all this we got another another serious question has been raised about whether or not elizabeth warren tells the truth you know she still claims that there was something in her background that really made her think that she was you know native american and remember it's one thing to think as a as a as a social story you tell people oh you know i think i have some native american you know heritage i mean there's there's a there's a, a story that, um, you know, sometimes was told. I think it was really in, in jest by my grandparents. or not in jest, but just it was lore, family lore that, you know, I had a grandfather who was born. He was born in one of the Dakotas, um, but he was born on a Sioux reservation. It turns out I think he was born in like Sioux City. But anyway, you know, like, but there's the stuff that people tell at Thanksgiving and that's that's one thing. And who cares? You know, it's just for the family. But to leverage it. And make that a, a presentation of yourself out to the rest of the world and to benefit from it very, very clearly, very explicitly. That's a different thing. And Elizabeth Warren's unforced error of the day that she unveiled her DNA results, one 1024th Native American, and she thought that proved she was Native American. I mean, she was a laughingstock, and she should have been. But it just goes to show you that she's also a little delusional. And there must be people around her who go along with some of her delusions and tell her, yeah, yeah, that's right. You, you got it. So we know about the fake Native American thing. And she's now apologized to some tribes about it and all the rest. But then she also has told this story. And remember, she's surging. And at some polls in some states, she's now number one. She's ahead of Biden. She says that back in 1971, she was fired from her teaching job because she was, quote, visibly pregnant. So she uh, claims that she was fired for being pregnant. And this is another, you know, oh, she understands, you know, women who work. And, and this is a moment of, of, of sympathy for her from everybody. And it turns out that a 2007 interview has reemerged in which she has also in which she said that she left the job because she realized that the education courses that she needed to take weren't working out for her. Quote, I went back to graduate school and took a couple courses in education and said, I don't think this is going to work out for me. I was pregnant with my first baby, so I had a baby and stayed home for a couple of years, and I was really casting about and thinking, what am I going to do? Then the Washington Free Beacon located county records from the local school board showing that in April of 1971, they voted to extend Warren a second-year contract that was the same as the one that she had had. So, and then a few months after that, she was she resigned and was accept, quote accepted with regret. So she wasn't, folks. She wasn't fired for being pregnant, but she runs around telling people this. She's tweeted out, "When I was 42 and finishing my first year of teaching on an experience millions of women will recognize, by June I was visibly pregnant, and the principal told me the job I'd already been promised the next year would go to someone else." This was 1971, years before Congress outlawed pregnancy discrimination, but we know it still happens in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. Oh, you mean Elizabeth Warren has created a, a victimhood narrative here? Uh, she's telling a victimhood narrative. Once, you know, she, she was a fake Native American, and now she's saying that she was discriminated against for being pregnant. Huh. Interesting. Do we believe her? Do we really think that somebody at the school board and she even said it wasn't illegal to discriminate based on pregnancy back in the 1970s 
Do we do we think that somebody went back and forged these notes? Do we think that someone made the decision to uh, lie about this, knowing that one day this woman who was a school teacher might run for president? I think the answer is no. I think we're all quite clear on the fact that Elizabeth Warren lied about this once again. But it'll be covered up by the media. They won't care. They'll say, oh, whatever. And she'll get to go around and say, well, when I was a teacher back in Indiana, in, in Oklahoma in 1972, I think that's kind of that kind of I got to work on my Warren a little bit, but it's getting close. Oh, gosh, you know, these banks and they take all of your money and then. they, Yeah, we're, we're getting close. She has a weird it's just a weird cadence and also you know her voice and god is up here a lot of the time and oh you know she was just teaching at, at harvard medical school i'm sorry law school <laughs> not medical school she's a do- she's a fake doctor too just kidding um oh by the way uh, uh kamala harris i just had to get to this she's got quite a policy to propose for you play third uh, play three In 2020, justice is on the ballot. And it is everything from having a cook in the White House to justice being on the ballot when the average American family is a $400 unexpected expense away from complete upheaval. Justice is on the ballot when working families in America know that their natural desire to parent their children may be a function of how much money they make every month. And that should never be the case. So my plan, my children's plan, is about saying, look, this is a matter of justice. It's a matter of recognizing that on the issue of raising the children of America, it should not be that the people who make a lot of money get the support and those who are working hard every day are having to, to go back to, to work after two weeks after childbirth. I, That's I crazy. think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of agreement about that. I, I personally think it's insane to go back to work after two weeks when you've just had a child. Harris has proposed six months of paid family and medical leave, my friends. Six months. I don't even think I'm allowed. I don't think I've been able to take off six days as a working adult in the last seven or eight years. I, I mean, I can't remember the last time I took more than a week off at one, at one time. Six months. So, yeah, we, we just had Harris, Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris. I say her name properly, I believe. I believe it is Kamala is what I have been told by people who know uh, that uh, Senator Harris is uh, proposing six months of paid family medical leave. Well, this is because they've also reached the point where. Uh, they've reached the point in this whole process that they just have to start promising things. I mean, Harris is really, based on what you would have thought from the media, Harris has really dramatically underperformed. Uh, She has not gotten the job done. Uh, She's someone who, if you had seen what the media was saying about her, let's say, uh, you know, a year ago, even you would have thought, oh, she's a top contender. She's a younger female Biden-esque Democrat and that she's acceptable to the establishment. But nope, 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 nope. Has not gotten the uh, the lift in the polls that you would have expected. You would have thought. Uh, so she's now proposing six months of family. Leave. I mean, even the Europeans would be like six months of uh, family leave. That sounds uh, very uh, expensive, no? Is, is my French Canadian the same as my Frenchman? Can neither confirm nor deny. Exact same thing, Buck. It is the exact same thing. Monsieur Mark, do you have a Frenchman that you want to share with this show? No, see, I know my weaknesses, so I'm not going to do them on the air. Oh, it's like that. I see how it is. So let's now get back to uh, the six-month family leave issue. This is what Democrats say when you you have to think about 
what the implications would be for a business. I, I think of so many businesses off the top of my head that if someone just disappeared, you know, what what would the radio show that I'm doing be if I just disappeared for six months? It would be someone else's radio show is what it would be. It wouldn't be like, hey, he's just taking six months off. He'll be back. It'll come out the coast, have a few laughs. Nope. That's, that's not going to fly. That's not going to work. So she's now saying she's going to mandate this. This is a desperation maneuver from somebody who really just wants to have some uh, resonance with the Democrat base. She just needs something. It's like it's like Beto running around being like, I just want to get rid of all the guns, including squirt guns and water guns. Because when you shoot somebody with a super soaker, it's like they get wet and then they get super bummed. And then like that could lead to violence with real guns later on in life when that person's an adult who's like not good at the guitar. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Beto is trying to go with the guns thing. Kamala Harris is promising six months family leave. Uh, Bernie is promising free everything. I will say Bernie is apparently uh, making a, a recovery, which is which is good to know. I'm glad that the senator is in uh, in good health. Here's the here's the burn talking about how he's doing. Play six. Getting back to work uh, a little bit right now. Uh, but mostly what I'm trying to do is I used to walk a good uh, distance every day and I got out of that habit. Uh, I'm trying to get back into it. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Glad the senator's in good health and he's making a recovery. Uh, it still is the case, though, that we have a, a problem if he does become the Democrat nominee. He is uh, too old and his health is too questionable for him to be the president. And that's that's not a mean thing to say. That's a real thing to say. Uh, let's move on to something nice, though, shall we? Where we can all just be happy for a moment and then we'll get into roll call. Ellen. Ellen DeGeneres, one of the most successful and well-known TV personalities in the country. Uh, she was at a Dallas Cowboys football game. And while at the Dallas Cowboys football game, she uh, took a video and showed that she was sitting next to former President George W. Bush. And I believe his wife was there as well. And she posted a little video. And people got very, very upset with her. Oh, my gosh. How could you sit next to someone as horrible, as terrible as uh, former President Bush? And uh, she had a she had a nice little moment that I wanted to share with you where she and I will say this. She seems you know, she seems like a nice, nice enough person. I don't know. Right. It's a TV personality. Who knows? But I've heard people say that she's really nice. I do not find her her jokes funny. I just don't find her funny. I don't know that maybe that's just me. It's a lot of like you know oh you know ha ha ha. It's a lot of jokes that I want to go you know ha ha ha. It's not very funny. Uh, you know that's my fake laugh. But she's been wildly successful. I mean, has made tremendous. She's probably just behind Oprah, I think, in terms of TV syndicated TV show that has an enormous reach and made a ton of money. And but she she I, I give her credit here. I thought this was a. This was a nice moment. She was getting a lot of a lot of heat from her supporters, the people who watch her, for just being seen sitting next to President George W. Bush at a, at a football game. And this was how she responded. Play five. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. For instance, I wish people wouldn't wear fur. I don't like it, but but I'm friends with people who wear fur. And I, I'm friends with people who are furry, as a matter of fact. I have <laughs> friends who should tweeze more. And I, I have... But just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone doesn't matter 
We often talk about the culture war on on this show and on many other shows and the, the warring cultures in this country and wokeness and social justice warriors and cancel culture now where if you say anything or do anything that people on the left disapprove of, if you offend any element of multiculturalism or diversity, uh, d- diversity ideology, you are to not just be censured, you are to be fired, to be ruined, to be destroyed. You know what victory in the culture war would look like as far as I'm concerned at this point, or at least something approaching victory, if people would just calm down and be nice to each other and understand that you can disagree on things without hating one another. I mean, that's uh, and I will say this. Americans like each other a whole lot more than our politicians seem to want us to and that our media certainly wants us to. And We do really get along. It's. The stories that we hear, it's what's outside of our own experience, but that's presented to us by outside entities, whether it's politicians or media that shows us constantly hating each other at each other's throats, you know, wanting to destroy the other. But victory in the culture war would be everyone starting to be a little bit nicer to each other and just understand that we could extend grace, forgiveness, kindness, decency to each other, even when we really disagree. And that doesn't make you. Uh, less committed to your beliefs doesn't make you less of a, uh, of a of a moral ethical person because you're you know turning a blind eye to someone else's failings it just means that we would all be doing better i think we'd all be better off if our approach to each other was rooted first and foremost in uh kindness unless there's a reason for the absence of it you know uh that's so i, I thought that what ellen said was it was a nice moment and i appreciated that she didn't do what so many would do in her situation would say, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't pick sitting next to him and it just happened. And I really disapprove of his stance on this and that. And no, she said, uh, and granted, she's also probably worth, I'm sure, close to a billion dollars. So, you know, it's not like she really has to worry about paying the bills, even if she did get canceled. But she wasn't going to get canceled. But she stood up to a little bit. I took a little bit of heat, a little bit of criticism there. And it's appreciated. So even when, when someone on the left does the right thing, we say it's the right thing. We don't just bash everything because somebody else or because somebody disagrees with us on something. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for roll call. Let's get to the email box my friends uh team buck at iheartmedia.com we do in fact have our official i know i'm gonna stop celebrating the fact we have an email address but here we go uh guile writes buck oh guile's got a cool name i do believe i got the solution for two of our current major problems i've heard the hong kong protesters singing the u.s national anthem and watch the Bernie praising socialist losers in this country take a knee during it. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure the rest of the equation out. Sayonara lefties. Um, thanks for all you do. It's appreciated more than you can imagine. When I get new listeners for you, I call it passing the buck. Well, please do pass the buck. And uh, tell all of your folks about it. Um, I don't understand. I don't really understand what... what it's, so the Hong Kong protesters sing the U.S. anthem... Bernie praising socialist losers take a knee during it. Uh, I don't. I'm, I'm not John. I mean, uh, Mark. Are you getting this? Are you something are you to do with it? football? Maybe. 
I don't know. I don't, I don't really. I'm not. I'm not picking this up. So, figuring it out. All right. Here we go. James writes, Buck, are you determined to pay taxes you don't owe? I emailed you the website you can use to educate yourself. Read the 16th Amendment. Blah blah blah. I'm giving you pearls here. Don't pay. T- don't, okay. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'm. I'm gonna try to stay out of federal prison though and pay the taxes that I think I'm supposed to pay based on what my accountant tells me. So, appreciate it though, my man. Um. Gina writes, hey, Buck and producer Mark, love your show today on a Monday. I listen on the local iHeart station, 7 to 10 p.m. when I can't get to the earlier podcast. I know there's never enough time in the day, for instance, to add something new to an already great radio uh, show such as yours. Remember, Buck, you're on fire. But would you consider inviting some libs to offer comments on part of the roll call on a specific day? I think this would give all of us at Team Buck even more thought for examination or exploration, if not just for laughs and could relieve you of monologue time. If not appropriate for them to directly call in or be invited into Team Buck, uh, or anyone for that matter, they could record a message or question on their phone to a dedicated number. We could all hear it, and you wouldn't even have to engage in conversation or debate with them. Screening the calls would be just as easy as those Facebook and email messages. I'm not sure if adding this to roll call would be technically appropriate, but was hoping producer Mark might be able to do this suggestion. Always listening, learning, and enjoying. Shields high, Gina. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for the idea. I just, I don't know how many liberals really care to write into the show or share their thoughts with the show. And usually when they do, it's just like profanity and it's one line. So and if anyone, look, if anyone out there listening wants to uh, challenge something that I've said on the show or they want to pose a question that is meant to uh, poke a hole in an argument or something, by all means, fine, please. Uh, we're thinking about what we're going to do on the taking phone call side of things. Um, I'm still I'm working on what that's going to look like. I'm not quite sure yet, so uh, we will see. I mean, we're, we've already, we got the Pluto stream on Pluto TV of the show, so you'll be able to watch video of the Buck Section show on your phone anywhere you anywhere where you have Wi-Fi or cell service. Download the Pluto TV app. I'll tell you what the channel is as soon as we launch the channel. Which will be right, producer Mark? It's next week. Allegedly, it is allegedly right next week. Okay, well, hopefully, uh, but it should be up next week. So we shall see. But thank you, Gina. Ken writes, uh, Brennan's making you guys look bad in the CIA. Does he still have a security clearance? Um, I think Brennan probably does. I, I think. Remember, there was that whole feud with Trump where he was going to pull their clearances, but I don't think he ever did. So I, I, don't, I would guess he probably still does. I think, I think former directors are considered forever cleared, pretty much. I, I forget what the specific, it's not even really, it's more custom than regulation with them. So let's see. Uh, Douglas writes, Buck, what's the right argument for the Syria pullout? Well, Douglas, I hope you listened to the show today. And I gave you my, my best and most honest assessment of what's going on in in Syria. Marty writes, Buck, do you think Democrats want to impeach Trump in hopes that Obama does not get exposed as being behind all of the crimes that Biden committed? And also what Burr, uh, Barr and Durham will find out about Obama from the deep state coup attempt. Um, I, I think they're trying to get ahead of the Durham and Barr inspector general report that's coming. I, I do think that's real. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that it's really about protecting. Oh, well, no, it is about protecting Obama because Obama's president when the Russia. No, you're right. Yeah. The, the Russia origin 
Russia collusion investigation origins would happen under Obama's watch, so it would implicate him. Um, so, yeah, I think they're trying to get ahead of this. I think that their effort here is meant to undermine some of the stuff that they view as a threat to them uh, going forward. So, yep, I, th- I think that that's all. I think that's all real. Uh, Stephanie writes, hey, Buck, I'm catching up on your podcast. You mentioned the Optimus Prime voice briefly on Thursday's show. Did you know the same voice actor has been Optimus since the early animated show through all the connected series and the movies? I did not know that. You'll get to relive it all one day with a little Buckster. Uh, Regarding Mike Myers, look out for the live action, The Cat in the Hat. He brings in all his voices. The movie is as strange and off-putting as you would expect. Uh, I know you're a busy man, but consider using your voice and knowledge to help educate our kids and tweens out there. Maybe a few 30-minute deep dives or even writing a book directed to impressionable minds out there. My kids hear bits of your show in the car and are taken by you. I noticed that Rush wrote a few chapter books on historical uh, events, but I think you you could do a much better job. We replay your old Halloween show from 2016, Dracula Vlad, every year. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you like that show. My 11-year-old son also let me know that there will be a new DuckTales show coming out that looks like it's going to be pretty decent, he says. I asked him if he had ever watched the old DuckTales. He answered like, I knew nothing about life with a, well, yeah, of course. So your woke game is on point with the tweensters. A graybeard millennial with a head of swooped hair might just be what they need to see them through uh, all this nonsense in the media. I know this 40-something Gen X mom ain't it. LOL, Shields High, Stephanie in New Orleans. Stephanie, thank you so much for the very uh, supportive and kind note. And I do have some projects in mind. I mean, we are, now that the podcast is earlier, which I said we would do, that the stream is starting, which I said we would do, that we have an email address, which I said we would do, uh, we will also make our way to bringing back uh, Shields High. The next episode is going to be the Siege of um, the siege of Malta, because we already did the fall of Constantinople. Oh, wait, no, or would it be the Siege of Vienna? Hmm. Might be the first siege. Might be the first siege of Vienna. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so I got some stuff coming your way. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but the more you guys share the podcast of the show, the more that I can do, because look, it's, this is, we are, this is a business and all we just need are numbers of people listening. And so when you tell people, when you pass the buck, as some of you already say, uh, you're doing me a huge favor. So, uh, and it really means a lot. So please, if everyone listen, if I would say this, if everyone listening to the podcast right now, got one person, one person to start listening to the podcast, uh, we would go from being a top 100 podcast to probably a top 50 podcast in a matter of a week or two. So there you go. And hello, Buck. I've been listening to you for a couple of years now. You've become my favorite talk show host. I always get excited when I see you on Fox and tell whoever's watching with me, there's my guy. I love your impersonations, but please stay away from singing. I think I love bacon as much as you do. And there's more here. Uh, it's been an honor talking to you, Buck. I pray you can stay strong in this battle. I see great things in your future. Shields high, and And thank you so much for the very kind note. Team, I'm going to have a guest host in tomorrow and Thursday because i got to do some stuff in Vegas, but uh, I'll be talking to you Friday. Shields high.